This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. And now we get an update on the situation in Peel, one of the hardest hit regions. Let's go to Dr. Lawrence Lowe, Medical Officer of Health for the region of Peel. Hi, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Libby. So first of all, the stay-at-home order has been extended. What's your reaction to that? Well, you know, I think uh, certainly we are starting to see promising trends in our community, but we've seen what happens when you in- uh, increase uh, contact and interactions too quickly. Uh, certainly that led to uh, our, our third resurgence here in Peel, uh, which did come a couple weeks later than the rest of the province, which saw a significant resurgence after uh, gradual reopening in mid-February. Uh, so I think it uh, it's helpful because our cases are coming down, but they're still higher than the peak when we went into the stay-at-home order. Our hospitals haven't quite cleared out yet. And while our vaccination campaign is continuing, we're not quite getting to the point yet. We're, we're almost there of 75% first dose coverage, which is, which is so vital as a first milestone. One of the issues that's ongoing in Peel is that there are so many essential workers that a stay-at-home order doesn't really make a difference. Uh, does, that, do, does that apply this time as well? Uh, well, I think the stay-at-home order helps to reduce discretionary contacts, right? And I think the reality is is that, uh, you know, there are lots of uh, people who can't work from home in the region of Peel. Uh, and outside of that, though, what we don't want is for uh, those individuals to be increasing even more their potential contacts by, you know, say, indoor dining or going to a gym or whatever the case might be. So the stay-at-home order is very helpful for helping to blanket reduce uh, an overall number of contacts. Uh, but certainly, Peel, we've had a real focus on uh, our, you know, our workforce that is unable to work from home. Uh, and we've, uh, you know, instituted our specific Section 22 order, which now allows us to expedite, clo- expedite closure of workplace. That's an outbreak with more than five cases that were acquired on site, as well as mobile uh, vaccination program expansion, which is really targeted. Uh, those workers who can't work from home wouldn't be able to access vaccination any other way. So for the last two weeks, the province has diverted half of the province's supply to hard-hit areas. Uh, I'm unclear about whether that's going to continue. So are you still going to get those uh, additional doses, or does that end? So at this point in time, we haven't received any indication as to uh, whether uh, the uh, over-allocation of supply to regions such as Peel or Toronto is going to continue. Uh, however, we do know, uh, at least with the doses that we have received, uh, it has allowed us to really increase our offering and our plans. We now have uh, six different workplace clinics that were built on top of the three original ones that we had started and continue to get into more. Uh, we're bringing on board uh, a, a giant regional hub, which is being sponsored by Bruce Power, uh, to add even more capacity starting next week. Um, and we also have increased hours, staffing, uh, you know, uh, basically uh, changed our operation of our clinics to increase uh, clinic throughput, and also are launching an overnight uh, 32-hour vaccine marathon this weekend uh, to try to get 7,500 people their first dose within an initial clinic. So uh, we, we're steadily vaccinating here in the region of Peel. We're grateful for the allocation from the province, and uh, certainly with more, we can do more. Have you asked them for more? Uh, we're, co- we're constantly in conversation uh, with our provincial partners. I think our big focus right now is really just bringing online all of these additional uh, channels and capacity to make sure that we are uh, making the most of the allocation that we have received. Um, and then certainly, depending on where our coverage is, you know, we're right now 50% first dose coverage amongst our adult population, vaccinating about one to one and a half percent a day. Uh, so we are, uh, we're very close to 75% first doses. And uh, we do recognize, of course, that uh, there is a need to get first doses out across the province as well, because that will ultimately also uh, prevent reintroductions or, or transmission back into Peel. So it's a balancing act that the ministry is very aware of our, our unique situation and needs. And and how much of the supply that you have have you used up? So we've used up a, a significant uh, portion of supply. Last week, we delivered a, a record-setting almost 120,000 doses of vaccine across our region. Uh, this week, our target is 150,000 doses of vaccine. Uh, and next week, our capacity will be getting closer to 170, 180,000. So uh, all the vaccine that's been given to us is uh, is flying out of the freezers really quickly and is getting uh, not just to 
uh, people in general, but also really getting to some of our most vulnerable residents. We're seeing the gap between uh, hard-hit uh, neighborhoods and, uh, and less hard-hit non-hotspot neighborhoods uh, really closed just in the last uh, week or so. And, and so when will you hear if you will continue to get those extra doses? Well, you know, the province is always uh, revisiting this on a, on a weekly basis, and there is uh, there are meetings usually on the weekend uh, where, uh, where information on allocations is shared. So uh, I imagine we'll hear probably by the end of the week as to whether the, the strategy will be extended uh, or uh, whether a different strategy might be taken. We do know that the ministry is navigating all sorts of different things as well, including the unlocking of uh, 12 to 17-year-olds uh, with the Health Canada approval, as well as uh, upcoming second dose planning. Uh, so I imagine there's a lot of complex things that they're considering as they also consider allocations here uh, for, for us in Peel. I gather that with some of your mobile clinics that doses after dark, it's, it sounds to me like a, it would be a pretty good party. You've got DJs, you've got prizes. Tell me. Yeah, so doses after dark is actually our uh, is is being marketed as a fun uh, piece, but it's good to remind everyone it's still going to be a vaccination clinic ultimately first and foremost. Uh, but yeah, we're trying to make it fun. We're trying to make it interesting. Trying to appeal to the younger demographic, but in also providing late evening and overnight availability, we're trying to test uh, what we have heard from our community this uh, theory that because we have a lot of shift workers amongst the people who can't work from home, uh, that some of them just can't get to our clinics because they're basically working from home and then uh, and then basically heading home after our clinic hours. And so we've expanded hours from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. at two of our biggest clinics. And Dose After Dark, while it is uh, ostensibly a fun activity, is also an opportunity for us to test demand uh, for uh, overnight and, and late evening, early morning services to see if uh, that's something we would incorporate into our planning in the future. What, what are the prizes? Uh, so, uh, honestly, I actually, they're a surprise to me. And <laughs> my team has been looking at a whole bunch of different things. But they're just going to be little little get- giveaways and getaways just to make the, make the fun, night fun. And then, of course, we've got, you know, myself, and we're trying to work on securing some other uh, famous physician commentators who you may or may not have seen. So, in the celebrity news. physicians. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, some of the folks that you've seen on CP24 or CBC, CTV, we're trying to, uh, trying to get some hey, of Hey, and here on Fight Back. Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, somebody was saying that it would be a good commercial opportunity if you had uh, a couple of interesting food trucks there. Yeah, definitely. Although we have to look at the provincial regulations under the stay-at-home. We do, like I said, really want to keep the focus on the fact that it is a vaccination clinic, uh, uh, and I think people coming should uh, should be expect to have a little bit of a happier time, but definitely uh, with the aim of getting their shot. In general, we've seen a shift in the last few weeks. It seems like uh, everybody kind of woke up to the fact that that a lot of the spread was in workplaces uh, and the focus wasn't there. I think partly because at the beginning it was so much of a crisis in long-term care. How, how do you see that evolution? Well, I mean, workplaces have always been a challenge in the region of Peel. I think ever since the beginning of the second wave, we've been highlighting that so many of our residents uh, work from uh, work in jobs that do not allow them to work from home. Um, and to the extent that they are the workers that have kept food on the shelves, kept our deliveries and packages and economies moving things in and out of the airport and out to all of Canada, um, you know, they've really uh, put, uh, you know, they've really sacrificed quite a bit uh, to uh, to keep the rest of us at home and safe. And so I think we've always said that Peel's challenge has been uh, our our workforce uh, and uh, and to the extent that, you know, paid sick days, we've seen some movement on that, uh, you know, certainly with, uh, you know, now targeting uh, them for vaccination so that they can access this protection. I'm just really glad that the broader conversation has moved to try to figure out how do we stop it in its tracks here in workplaces in Peel, because that ultimately benefits everyone in Ontario. Right. But why do you think it took so long for that message to get across? Well, I mean, I, th- I think you're right that uh, there was certainly the focus in long-term care, at least in the first instance. There was also, a, in starting in the second wave, because we had reopened quite significantly, a lot of focus on uh, social gatherings, activities with people outside of one's household. And then once you take everything away, what I call those discretionary contacts, uh, then you have what is the reason why Peel has been such a high, like high transmission area. Uh, you you really have those things that remain open because ultimately open means vulnerable in a pandemic because contact is still happening, interactions are still happening, and even if you put precautions in place, those workplaces being open still means that. 
those people are still, you know, there, there is still an inherent risk to meeting in person where the disease that spreads from person to person. One of the issues that's come up and has been taken up by Mayor Brampton, Mayor of Mississauga, is this issue of outdoor amenities. They are lobbying for the province to open up golf, tennis, basketball, whatever. Uh, and it it turns out, I mean, the chief medical officer of health says, well, the problem is what happens before and after. W- what is your take on that? Yeah, well, I mean, definitely the before and after was a challenge that we had seen with a lot of the other uh, recreational activities, people carpooling, people uh, doing like an apres thing where they may be uh, moving in closer together, spending extended periods of time sharing the same airspace. Uh, and so that definitely has been a challenge. I think fully recognizing that the weather is getting better uh, I and also that our trends are getting better. I've always been a proponent that uh, as things start to resolve, uh, we know there's a diminished risk of transmission outside. We know that with distancing and masking, you can help to uh, re- reduce uh, that risk even further. Uh, let's try to make more of our uh, outdoor spaces as we can and do so safely, uh, even uh, to, to really just sort of balance out uh, what has been a very long and uh, prolonged uh, shutdown and closure. Uh, are we at the the peak of it? I mean, when we're starting to see a little bit of a, a decrease in the numbers, but when do you think we'll kind of be past this phase? Well, first and Peel, it's really three things we're looking at. I mean, cases are the uh, initial uh, thing, and that's why we follow them. Uh, they are starting to come down, and we do need to maintain the course and uh, make sure we're limiting contacts to get this third wave down altogether. Uh, we need to keep an eye on the hospitals because ultimately that's the escape valve because out of all the cases, uh, some individuals will uh, get sick and require hospitalization. Some will require intensive care. And right now our hospitals have not yet stabilized their picture. They still have surgeries canceled, patient transfers occurring. So that's going to need a couple of weeks to make sure that we're starting to rebuild our capacity uh, there. And then, of course, vaccination. So we are getting closer and closer to 75% first dose coverage. We then need to push through to 75% first dose, 20% second dose coverage, which is where the UK is, uh, where they're having a fairly extensive reopening. And then from then on, really try to get to 75% two-dose coverage to have that you know, really significant protection to interrupt transmission, hopefully, in our community. Okay. that. Uh, thank you very much for the update and all the best, Dr. Lawrence Lowe, Medical Officer of Health for Peel Region. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. That's all the time we have for today. Remember, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. There's a brand new stay-at-home order. You'll be able to weigh in on that and all the back and forth about AstraZeneca if you have questions or comments or whatever else you want to talk about. Uh, That's tomorrow, Free For All Friday. And right now, that's all the time we have. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We have breaking news, and that is that Ontario is extending the stay-at-home order until June the 2nd. No surprise there. They've certainly dropped enough hints that that is what is going to happen. It comes as we see a bit of a drop in cases and the positivity rate, but, you know, we are still in this third wave. So, people, if you have a reaction to that, if you are hoping that things were going to be opened up, or if uh, this is what you expect and this you think is the right thing to do. In the meantime, uh, millions of Canadians, especially those of us who have received a first dose of AstraZeneca, are eagerly awaiting the results of a UK trial on the safety and efficacy of mixing the various vaccines. There were preliminary results out last night, which showed that while mild and moderate side effects increased with that protocol, using the vaccines interchangeably appears to be safe. Uh, And there's another issue that we haven't talked about around the pause in the use of AstraZeneca, and it's the question of liability, because the contracts that the government signed with uh, the pharmaceuticals absolved them of that responsibility. So if you have comments or questions 
416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, a family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research, and Dr. Kumanan Wilson, who is an epidemiology researcher and a professor at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Many thanks for having me. Okay, let us begin with you then, Iris. Uh, First of all, your reaction to the extension of the stay-at-home order from your point of view, is that the right thing? Very much so. We have no choice. I mean, the, the alternative is to have our ICUs, emergency rooms, and hospital beds even further overwhelmed. Yes, we are facing backlogs, especially in orthopedic surgery now, but what is our alternative? And that's the problem. By the time they're erecting the tent in front of Sunnybrook, it's a clear indication to me we definitely need this lockdown to be extended. And I think it'll, it'll pay back in many, many different ways. Dr. Wilson, what's your reaction to the results of that trial? I mean, we, we now know that it appears to be safe, even though there are uh, increased mild or moderate symptoms, uh, side effects of mixing the vaccine. It's things like fatigue, fever, chills. I mean, this is a, a very unique situation we're in. Uh, obviously, uh, in an unprecedented time, we've developed multiple new vaccines, and many have used new technologies. We've been very fortunate, actually, and how effective they are, and particularly the mRNA vaccines. And we needed them as the parent uh, to help us get out of this. And, and we've seen in, in places like the UK and Israel where we've had mass vaccination programs, they have been very effective in reducing the spread of the disease. But the nature of something like this is we rely on the clinical trial, but we also have to continue to monitor and evaluate after the vaccine is released. And that's what's happening now. Uh, A clinical trial can pick up a 1 in 10,000 adverse event risk, but for population-based exposure, lower rates are irrelevant. And and we've seen that with the AstraZeneca vaccine. So now we're fortunate the UK is able to do these studies to determine to see if we can combine vaccines and are, is it safe? And then it looks like it's safe, but again, we won't know until it's in a, a larger population use. And then is it effective? Oh. Let me give the numbers out again. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We're talking about these preliminary results on mixing vaccines. So say you had a first dose of AstraZeneca, like I did. Uh, is it a good idea, a better idea, uh, an okay idea to get a, your second dose with a different vaccine? So these trials in the United Kingdom have showed preliminary results that likely there be more side effects that pass in a few days, things like fever, chills, fatigue, uh, but that it seems to be safe. The question they did not answer yet is whether it actually works. Dr. Gorfinkel, what do you think? Well, there, there are pros to doing it. You know, on the one hand, we're diversifying our immune portfolio, if you will, of responses. Right, so one vaccine gives one way that the body reacts to the virus if it's ever exposed. It offers great protection. So the question is, what if we give a different vaccine? Will that now offer a better portfolio, an improved response? In theory, we could have an improved protection from emerging variants because we have a more diversified portfolio, if you will, more antibodies more T-cells responding to the infection to prevent us from getting ill. But what's the downside of this? First of all, the UK trial, these are preliminary results, and they only know the results. It's been going on for about three months, this trial. They want to extend it out. We're going to get better results in in another couple months because they also have another arm of the study in which instead of getting the vaccine in four weeks, that's what happened in this study. They're getting... AstraZeneca and Pfizer in 12 weeks, you know, so 12 weeks between doses. And that may be more realistic to what most Canadians are facing who receive the vaccine. 
So there is better information coming out. And keep in mind, this only involved 830 people. You know, yes, they were all over 50, which is good. But then on the other hand, you know, we it would be great to have real-world data thrown in. So Germany and France may be able to deliver on that, although Germany has recently said they're just going to give it to everybody. You know, because the risk of VIPIT is really 1 in 60,000 people. Let me put that into context. If You know, if a, a family doctor has about an average of 1,000 patients, you'd have to have 60 doctors standing in one room to have one doctor have one patient who has this. That's how rare it is. You know, but the, the, the footprint that's caused in people's mind, the emotional footprint, has been massive. Like, people are really frightened. And who can blame them? It's on every news channel. People are talking about these unusual side effects. I'm not denigrating them. I'm saying, yes, it's a super important sign. But understand, that's really saved the goose of the United Kingdom. They've given 60% of their shots has been AstraZeneca. Right. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Wilson, are those other countries, are France and Germany already mixing uh, vaccines? Uh, not that I'm aware of. I think uh, most of the world is awaiting the results of the UK study. The UK got out pretty quickly and was able to vaccinate a, a large portion of their population. So uh, I think there is a lot of interest in, in what we hear from the UK. And Dr. Gorfinkel's comment, it's going to be very interesting that there's a lot we don't know about immunology and we're learning as we you know, go through this process. Uh, it is possible you could get a better response. Uh, we we're sort of seeing that uh, vaccine-induced immunity seems to be better than natural immunity for giving a broader-based antibody response to, to variants. So we might see something very positive that way, but we, we definitely need the results of the study. Well, yeah, exactly. I've, I've heard quite a few people hypothesize that it may actually be, be better, but right now this trial hasn't even shown whether it works altogether. Well, basically what happened in Germany and France is after VIPIT became clear, those are two countries that, in fact, did decide to allow individuals who had received AstraZeneca as a first dose to receive either of the messenger RNA vaccine. So patients, I think, over the age of 60 and over 55, respectively, in Germany and France, they, they were told you can get Pfizer or Moderna if you've received AstraZeneca as a first choice, as a first dose, rather. So they were given that. You know, so what's going to happen with that real-world data matters a lot because it will add to our knowledge about, you know, just the clinical trial done in the U.K. Why the clinical trial is so important is because it's done in a rigorous way. It's scientifically looking at things and controlling for certain things, and, and here the control was they compared it to individuals who had received two doses of AstraZeneca, two doses of Pfizer, so they're making a really good comparison within the same group. And that matters in research, because otherwise you wind up having all these differences in, in comparing groups. So here, though, the real-world data is super important because it will give us millions of points, but we have to sit tight and wait for it. It's not, this, these are the kind of things that's not published immediately. Let's take a call from Ayala in Toronto. Hello? Oh, Hi. I have two questions. Pfizer for the first vaccine, and then people, certainly my family, neighbors who got Pfizer one, had to wait four months, still haven't got their second shot. And yet Europe, all other countries, the most between shots, as far as I'm aware, is six weeks. So somehow Canada's doing it four months. Uh, well, and the they most varying reports on that, and the other question is that they talked a few weeks ago about a booster shot when you had Pfizer, one, two vaccines, and then a booster. Does anyone know anything about the booster? They don't seem to discuss it anymore. Okay, I'm going to uh, let Dr. Gorfinkel answer that, but in real-world data, there are three-month intervals, but you're right, there's no other country with a four-month interval. Yes, that's, well, that's true. First, I want to thank you for that excellent question. I get that question all the time from patients. And I think that the decision to delay the dose is actually a very reasonable decision. 
There are exceptions to that for patients who are at extreme risk, those over the age of 80, because they've constituted a large number of the deaths, those who are severely immunosuppressed. And those individuals are, in fact, getting their dosages sooner. There was a study that came out of the U.K. that showed strong immunity, even in individuals over the age of 80, when they were assessed at five weeks. You know, so, like, this is one of the better studies we have. But I think that the decision was a very reasonable and reasoned decision. Now, we're getting over 2 million doses a week now. And in June, that's going to go up to 2.4 million doses in Canada. We are going to be awash in vaccines. So I think that this whole four-month thing, for a lot of people, they're going to be able to get the dose much sooner than that. That's what it looks like right now. Dr. Wilson, we're talking about getting the rest of these trial results, which are very important, but I'm, I'm looking at the timing of it. And even with the extended intervals that, that are in effect here, it looks like we won't have that results before people have to get their second shots. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of some good news and some bad news. The good news is that, I mean, we're seeing with AstraZeneca, actually delaying the second dose uh, may actually maximize the the response, uh, waiting two to three months. Um, it seems to give you a better response, at least if you get a second dose of AstraZeneca. Uh, but to the point of the four-month interval, um, I think it really does depend on your age. The, in older populations, there is a more rapid waning of immunity, and uh, also the response isn't quite the same as in younger populations. I, I think there will be a shift uh, in policy where, for older populations, that second dose will be given more quickly. Um, so, you know, I, I, again, I, I would like to re- support the, the comments made previously. We, we need to have real-world evidence, but we also need to have trials. Uh, we, we need to look at what we have available. This isn't an easy situation for decision makers. There there are always unexpected events occurring, and and we have to be able to pivot accordingly. Uh, Yeah. Um, Iris, what do you think? Are we going to get those results soon enough for people getting their second dose? Uh, Absolutely. I I think the take-home heroes, we're getting tons of doses on. Uh, In fact, just today, I received a notification from Toronto Public Health saying that doctors who are at higher risk can now get their second dose of Pfizer sooner. You know, so I'm a forward-facing doctor, right? I'm a frontline worker. I'm a GP. I'm seeing all these patients. And so I'm thrilled. Like, I was booked four months, so now I get it probably in, I don't know, two or three months. Right, but but I'm talking about uh, especially for people who had the first shot of AstraZeneca, which is a, a lot of people in the Zoomer demographic, right. uh, that that uh, there will be vaccine doses available before the results are really out on whether mixing is a good thing. Yeah, so what does a person decide to do? Right now, the mass of the world's evidence would favor getting AstraZeneca a second time. When we look at the safety of the second AstraZeneca dose, the likelihood of getting good that drops to one in a million, it appears that if it's going to happen, it, it will have happened on the first dose. So it's, I'm not saying that it's impossible, but the current data suggests that it is highly, highly improbable, one in a million, of getting it on that second dose. Because the massive evidence favors getting AstraZeneca, even Justin Trudeau's own doctor said, get AstraZeneca for the second dose, because that's where we know it's the bird in hand. You know the immune response. It's been studied. We've got the real-world data. We've got the clinical trial data. This is what the World Health Organization, the European Medicine Agency, this is what Health Canada, NACI, everyone is in alignment with us. If possible, you should get the second dose of the same product. You know, so these are theoretical things. There are theoretical benefits to diversifying the portfolio for sure. But is that the standard of care? It is absolutely not at this point. It's theoretical. We don't know until we've actually done the measurements. Heck, this has been such a humbling experience from beginning to end. Like, and, and the fact is, I, I've learned personally, like, you have to look at the evidence as it comes out. We just don't know until it's actually been proven. Dr. Wilson, one of the things that I've heard is that uh, one drawback of AstraZeneca is that it doesn't protect against the South African and Brazilian variants. Uh, What do you know about that? 
Yeah, there, there's a sense that the mRNA vaccines might give you a, a broader coverage. Um, obviously, it's fortunate the AstraZeneca vaccine seems to work against the UK variant. I, I think this one of the issues with the whole AstraZeneca affair is like the world was kind of counting on the AstraZeneca vaccine globally, and we need the world to be vaccinated to protect Canada. Uh, and as well, obviously, we should be concerned about what's happening throughout the world. Uh, you know, if, if this, we, we have to hope that this, uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine works against the, the Indian variant. Um, and uh, we, you know, that's something that people are going to be keeping a close eye on. Uh, but it does appear that the mRNA vaccines might be a little bit better against some of these variants. The, the other opportunity with the mRNA vaccines, they can be more rapidly updated as variants become available and they can, they can change the, the vaccine. Uh, and, Dr. Gorfinkel, I mean, people are, I mean, a lot of the problems around this are with the communication. I mean, with AstraZeneca, first it was no good for people over 65, then it was only good for people over 65, and on and on and on it went. And there are, you know, frankly, a lot of people who've had that first shot who regret it. You know, it's an interesting thing. Um, What's the alternative? Science is this way. Science can only react to what the best and latest information is. And I think the best the population can do is to fight the tendency to, to revert to, to simplistic thinking, to go back to, oh my gosh, this is just so overwhelming, I can't manage it. It's, I, I would say fight that tendency. Because that's what science is and what science does. It looks at the evidence and it pivots. It changes. I, I'm a part of that. You look at what I was saying a year ago, and, you know, it's been, it, it has to change because we've learned a lot since that time, and we've learned the hard way. And the best I can do is say to, to, to the population is understand that. Allow science to pivot. Don't push back by with vaccine hesitancy or overly simplistic answers that just, oh, forget the whole thing. No, that's the wrong way. Say, okay, well, this is what the science shows. I'm glad that scientists are embracing the new findings. I'm glad they're being transparent about how they were right or how they were wrong and now moving to make corrections in that in public policy. That's the best we can do. Science is what it is. Uh, Dr. Wilson, do you agree with Dr. Gorfinkel that uh, right now, until we have more information, people should just get a second shot, same as the first shot? Uh, yeah, again, uh, I think we have to follow the recommendations that our officials put out. Um, you know, it did work. The system did work this time. We had an independent advisory body, NASI, which is composed of the top immunization uh, experts in the country, they made a recommendation on AstraZeneca. It had a lot of opposition to it at many levels, and I think it turned out to be the correct recommendation. And, and that's what we wanted. We wanted an independent body who could look at the science and then make a recommendation, even if it was in opposition to what other authorities may have uh, may have believed. Uh, and the, you know, it appears that the events have played out to support what they had suggested about and maybe the risk-benefit ratio is not what we thought. So, uh, you know, we have a system in place where we have regulators who are looking at the data. We have an independent science body, and, and they will be looking at what comes forward and, and advising us. And we, we have to go with that right now. Okay. That is uh, all the time we have for this segment. Thank you so much, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel and Dr. Kumanan Wilson. Many thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Uh, we're going to take another break. When we come back, the Medical of Officer of Health for Peel, Dr. Lawrence Lowe. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Ottawa is calling it a threat to Canada's energy security, but Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has not backed off her demand that Enbridge has to shut down its Line 5, which runs through her state. Whitmer's deadline for the shutdown was yesterday, but the company says it won't comply unless ordered to do so by a judge. 
Also yesterday, the federal government joined the court challenge to the order. Now, put it in perspective, without this pipeline, which re-enters Canada at Sarnia, uh, Ontario would be about 45% short of the crude oil it requires. Line 5 supplies is used to produce gasoline and diesel for the province. It's also a critical source of petroleum for the Line 9 pipeline that runs to Quebec and provides 40 to 50% of the crude oil that's used by Quebec refineries to make gasoline. So what does this all mean for us? And is the government doing enough. Let's go to Conservative MP Michael Chong, who is the Conservative Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs. Hi, MP Chong. How are you? Great to be here. I'm great. Thank you. Uh, So uh, is the government, the government uh, filed what's called an amicus brief uh, in the court case. Are they doing enough? No. Um, We've been calling on the Prime Minister to pick up the phone and call President Biden uh, and ask him to invoke the 1977 Transit Pipelines Treaty to ensure that this vital piece of infrastructure remains open. Um, and we think this is a serious enough matter that a phone call between the Canadian Prime Minister and the American President is necessary and needs to happen. The governor, Gretchen Whitmer, says that uh, the pipeline is is an accident waiting to happen and a bad one. Well, our view is that this pipeline has operated safely for decades. It's been operating since 19, the early 1950s and has not had a leak into water during that entire time. Um, so we think that her assessment is wrong and that the pipeline should be, remain open. As you pointed out, uh, half a million barrels of oil and other crude liquids flow through this pipeline. It, it supplies about half of Ontario's oil and gas and two-thirds of Quebec's and much of the jet fuel for Pearson International Airport. Uh, We cannot afford to have this pipeline shut down. It would be an economic disaster if that were to happen. Well, Biden, as we know, is not keen on pipelines himself, and Whitmer is a very close ally of his. Well, which is why we think the Canadian Prime Minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, needs to pick up the phone and call the president and say, you know, Canada is America's closest ally and trading partner. Um, We have treaties between our two countries, uh, and we need you to take action to ensure this pipeline remains open. The U.S. federal government needs to take action uh, and override the state authorities to make it clear that this pipeline must remain open. Uh, So that's why we think the Canadian prime minister needs to pick up the phone and do it. If if the Canadian prime minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, isn't going to pick up the phone for such an important issue, then, you know, I I can't imagine uh, what set of criteria he would need to have in order to pick up the phone to call the American president on an issue so important to Canada. Now, has he responded to your demand? No, he hasn't. Um, The government has been passive and equivocating in the face of this. It wasn't until uh, recent days that they filed this amicus brief in a U.S. court. Uh, It wasn't until recent days that they indicated that, you know, they were uh, looking to at, at getting involved in this. Um, up to recently, they've left it to Enbridge itself to deal with this. We think this is a serious enough issue to the national economy that the federal government should have gotten involved much more at a much earlier date. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do you think the consequences are? I mean, right now, it seems to be there's mediation, I gather. And there is this process in court, and Enbridge has basically defied the governor's order. Uh, Do they have any moves to shut it down quicker? Well, it's playing out in the U.S. courts, but there's a great deal of uncertainty. Um, And that's why we think the federal government needs to get involved, why Prime Minister Trudeau needs to pick up the phone to call President Biden. You know, this is if this pipeline gets shut down, it will be an economic crisis. Um, it supplies half of Ontario's energy needs, um, gas and oil needs. It supplies two-thirds of Quebec's. Uh, we cannot afford to have this pipeline shut down. And so leaving it to an uncertain court process in Michigan is not good enough. The prime minister really needs to invoke the treaty 
pick up the phone and call the president. What makes you think that the the president will be sympathetic to this? As I've said, he is not a pipeline fan in general. He shut down Keystone, uh, or that was one of the first things that he announced that he would do. Uh, and again, uh, she's a big ally of his. Well, I think the difference here is that this is an existing pipeline that has been uh, in existence for some 70 years. Uh, It's safely transported crude oil and other liquid products for generations from Western Canada to Sarnia, Ontario. President Biden himself voted for the 1977 uh, treaty when he was in the U.S. Senate. And so, you know, there's good grounds to believe that he supports this pipeline and that he wants to see it remain open. Um, but we need him to get involved to invoke American federal authorities to ensure that the pipeline remains open. And that, I think, will only happen if the Canadian prime minister picks up the phone to call the American president to make that request. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, why, as a speculation, would you think that Trudeau hasn't done this? Uh, does he not want to be seen to be failing at it if if it comes to that? I think that possibly is a reason. I think, you know, I think uh, the other reason could quite simply be that the government has been uh, mismanaging this file, that they've been slow to realize the risk of this getting shut down and passive in the face of what has been a threat now for six months. Um, you know, we think they need to be actively engaged on the file and it needs to be from one head of government to another rather than leaving it to the uncertainties of a court process in Michigan. There has not been any issue with this pipeline, but there was with uh, another one of Enbridge's pipeline. Is is that not a good enough, um, I don't know, pretext? Well, I think that, well, first of all, there were two different pipelines. Secondly, this pipeline in question, Line 5, has been inspected and is up to standard. Um, furthermore, the company is committed to um, to building another pipeline uh, under the under the lake bed in order to ensure that there's an additional layer of protection. Um, so I think this pipeline um, should continue to operate. It's clear that the experts who've and engineers who've uh, who've surveyed it uh, say it's in good working order, uh, and I think we should. Uh, the government needs to be taking a much stronger position here, um, much taking a much stronger set of actions in order to engage the American administration and ensure this pipeline remains open. Look, this is this this is significant. We are struggling to emerge out of you know, the economic fallout of this pandemic. We cannot afford to have half the oil and gas that Ontario uses and two thirds of the oil and gas that Quebec uses cut off at such a critical juncture in our economic recovery. Okay. MP Michael Chong, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Okay. Uh, let's take a call from Dan in Elwood. Hello, Dan. Good day. Yeah, he said this pipeline's been operating safely for 70 years, but I understand it was built with an expected 50-year uh, lifetime. Now, uh, apparently Enbridge is, go- is going to build a tunnel under the streets of Mackinac where the big danger is, but they're having difficulty getting the permits. And, uh, yeah, we need to get... uh, The Prime Minister definitely needs to talk to Biden. He also needs to get Biden to uh, pressure them to get these permits uh, for that tunnel pushed through as quick as possible, because it is a serious danger. I mean, we need the oil. There's no doubt about it. We need this oil. We need this line running. But we need to get it as safe as possible, too. And that means get that tunnel under the Straits of Mackinac approved and built. Okay, and Dan. The prime minister, and the prime minister. I hope. I hope these guys are listening. That's one of the things they need to talk to Biden about. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Right now, we've heard about the consequences, and despite that, Green Party leader Annamie Paul is in favor of the shutdown, and she joins me now. Thanks so much. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. So, what is your view of this? Well, uh, what we have said is that we support Governor Whitmer's decision, uh, not just her decision, but also the calls from Indigenous um, nations on both sides of the border uh, to close down Line 5. Uh, there's no reason for us to doubt uh, the, the credibility of the data that she's relying on that tells her that this is a disaster that's waiting to happen and that the consequences would be catastrophic. 
She made a, a very solemn and serious promise to Michigan residents when she was running in 2018 to be governor uh, that she would close down Line 5, and, and they really wanted her to because of the, the Kalamazoo spill that happened about a decade ago. So we respect that, and now the, the, the issue for Canada is how do we prepare for what Governor Whitmer is clearly determined to do. What about the consequences? This would cause severe shortage in Ontario and Quebec. Uh, what do you say to that? Uh, I really want to say that you know that I believe that in the case of Governor Whitmer, and certainly in our case, we are thinking about the, of the people on on both sides of the border and how this will impact them. Uh, I'm really disappointed that given that we've had over two and a half years to plan for this, because Governor. Whitmer uh, made it clear back in 2018 that she was going to do this, that we haven't put any contingency plans in place. And I really encourage the, the, uh, the government, the federal government, uh, and um, the, uh, the uh, oil and gas companies not to stoke fear amongst the public. Um, we know that there are alternatives to Line 5. Uh, we, all, we have you know, energy workers that have said that at, at least 60% of the capacity can be um, diverted from Line 5 to the existing um, pipeline system uh, in that serves the Great Lakes region. So, you know, this is the time for us to do what we should have done years ago, which is to talk about our Plan B and to make sure that if this does in fact happen, that um, we have the energy supply we need and we protect uh, as many jobs as we can. Well, the one of the estimates is 33,000 jobs in the United States alone, let alone here. And, and another issue that some people have brought up is that if, if the pipeline is shut down and the, the stuff is trucked in, that would create a huge amount of pollution and mostly in Michigan. That's. Oh, okay. Uh, I guess we lost Annamie Paul. Um, we heard her view that the pipeline should be shut down and that we should be concentrating on how to make up the shortfall that that would cause. And she agrees with Governor Whitmer that this was, uh, uh, this is an accident waiting to happen. Let's now bring in Bob Richardson, Senior Counsel to National Public Relations. Hi, Bob. How are you, Libby? Fine. How are you? I am good, thank you. So what are the politics of this? The conservatives are saying that uh, Justin Trudeau isn't doing enough. What he really needs to do is pick up the phone to Biden to make sure the shutdown doesn't happen. We heard Annamie Paul saying that, according to her information, 60 percent of uh of of the oil that we would lose could be diverted uh and the problem is that there was a lot of time to prepare for this but we did not so what's your what's the politics of this well i think the both opposition parties are saying what they what they need to say but i think the facts in this one are that uh, the federal government has been active on this file they've filed an amicus brief in the, in the us federal court They've discussed this at the highest levels of the U.S. government, including with President Biden. They've had discussions with the governor. They've encouraged business leaders to support Line 5 and put uh, heat on, uh, on, on Michigan and the governor. Uh, most of the people who have done an analysis of the, the approach they've taken legally think it's smart and, and will result in this issue ending up in federal court, which is where we want it to. So I would say overall, I think the federal government has done the right thing. Um, uh, are are these things ever perfect? No, it's kind of a it's this one is kind of messy. Uh, but you know, it's funny. Uh, conservative commentators in the National Post and another place, somebody like La- La- Lauren Gunter, um, are complaining that uh, the federal government has stood up for Line Five but didn't stand up enough for Keystone XL, and then you have. Michael Chong saying, oh, they're not standing up for uh, for line five. So which one is it? These guys sort of need to get their act together. Right. Why isn't Justin Trudeau calling Biden? Well, he's spoken to Biden on the issue. Uh, and I think uh, I think they're doing what they what uh, what they want uh, to have happen. This is uh, the line continues to be open after May 12th. Uh, as I said, they filed a briefing court. 
and they're uh, hoping to have a uh, ruling and have this uh, head to federal court while there is binding arbitration and binding negotiations going on. Okay. Uh, Before I let you go, Bob, let me ask you uh, your take on breaking news, which was uh, the ruling of the ethics commissioner, Mario Dion, on the WE charity scandal. And he absolved the prime minister, but said that uh, former finance minister Bill Morneau was guilty of a conflict of interest. Uh, What's your reaction to that? Um, I'm I'm actually a little surprised. I thought that they would be both sort of technically found guilty, so uh, uh, good, I, I suppose good for the Prime Minister. This was not the um, most shining hour for the federal Liberal Party or the federal government, and I think um, politicians do have to think twice, even if they think they are uh, focused on the public good. So I hope that there are lessons learned here um, and that, you know, that we can move on. Um, I, I the prime minister is not the type of guy I think uh, in public life trying to line his pockets. Um, he is, he will do very well. Thank you very much on his own in the private sector. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've never sort of bought that sort of line that, uh, that people were saying, but um, I, I do think it's been sloppy. I think there's been some sloppiness from his office and I hope uh, they use this as an opportunity to clean that up. Right. Bob Richardson, thank you so much. Appreciate your insight. Thanks, Libby. Okay. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, so there were very uh, long-awaited, much-awaited preliminary results on a clinical trial in the United Kingdom about whether it's okay to mix vaccines. It's coming in the context that the AstraZeneca vaccine has been paused here in Ontario and in other provinces as a first dose. We, we don't know what's going to happen to it as a second dose. So we'll drill down on those results. And we'll also check in with something that we haven't looked at before. And that's the whole issue of compensation for people who have those very, very rare blood clots. Uh, We'll see if that is a factor in this whole, frankly, mess. When we return, the numbers to call if you have questions or if you have a certain take, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.